Gracious God, give us a clearer vision, more precision in our sense of what it means to follow Jesus. Show us as we continue to hear your word, to surround it, to help us to hear from you, each of us in our own particular situations, the idols that are set before us, the fiery furnaces that are from which we can feel the heat, that we are uh, threatened with being thrown in, and the, the challenges that are before us. May your spirit work in us that we truly recognize the reality of your presence, the the, the truth of your word, and that no matter what, we cannot be harmed, even by fiery furnaces. Even death itself has no hold upon us. Teach us, lead us, encourage us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One thing from this particular passage of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego having the temptation of the authorities in their day to bow down to the idols. And if they don't, they'll be thrown in the furnace. Is the reality in our own lives that we face great temptations to submit to other gods. Plain and simple, we face great temptations to submit to other gods. To which the Bible calls idolatry. I mean, it's, it is the sin of sins. That we follow the other authorities in the powers of our world instead of following the authority of God. It is in our discussion through Daniel that you know, there's the separation, there's the assimilation that are two temptations that we can take. The separation you know, is that we are neither in the world nor of the world. You know, that we're, we're salt that remains in the salt shaker. That absolutely does no good. And that's, that's what separation from the world is. As one response to the temptations of the world. The other is assimilation where we, we are both in the world and of the world. We're, we're just like the world. We're salt. As Jesus says, it loses its saltiness. We, we taste just like the world. I mean, there's no distinction. There's no difference. Except maybe we do it with a cross on our neck. That's assimilation. The other temptation. And the real temptation, I think, here, for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, just assimilate, you know, just silently, you know, sort of bow down real quick like. You know, and just so that nobody notices and but it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, a ritual. But they refused and, and they are caught then in that, that middle journey that we are on, that we join with them. As we are seeking to follow Jesus in, in a world that doesn't. That journey that we call contextualization. In our own context. In our own situation. How do we live out the gospel? I mean, in a very real way, each of us who are seeking to follow Jesus are missionaries. Maybe not voluntary missionaries. Neither were these guys. <laughs> they didn't want to be in Babylon. They much rather would have been back in Jerusalem. 
But just like them, we are involuntary missionaries in our world, forced to to live out the gospel of Jesus, following Jesus in a world that doesn't. And there will be times when we will be up against direct idols and forces of the world that will push us and threaten us and challenge us to not follow Jesus. To bow down to his idols. To to the idols of the world. The book of Revelation is a lot like Daniel because it it speaks of that same kind of situation of the the persecution, the opposition, the death that the church can face in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, in a world that is opposed to Jesus. Revelation 14 highlights that as well. And in verse 12, it really gives the answer... In a simple way, what is Christian courage? And it's here, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. You know, the endurance of the saints that we continue to follow Jesus no matter what the opposition. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. That we keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith in Jesus. I mean, a simple sentence to say, but a great challenging word to live. And that's what Christian courage is. That we will face that temptations, those temptations. And if we don't succumb, we will then face the consequences of getting thrown in the furnace. If, if we obey God instead of the gods of this world, the powers of this world that directly oppose us will seek to hurt us, to destroy us, to totally abolish our witness. It's one of the other promises that Jesus gives us, that we will be persecuted as we follow Jesus. There have been plenty of examples in history of the church seeking to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't, where the opposition was clear. One was in the nation of China. Some people from the first service even shared with me that they had, their parents were missionaries in China. Well, in 1949, when Chairman Mao took over, and instituted the the cultural revolution, he totally opposed the church. It, it It was the work of the government to oppose the church. And it was organized. Missionaries were thrown out. They were sought after. Preachers were imprisoned. Families destroyed. Any church buildings that were owned were razed to the ground. Government sent spies to infiltrate the churches to report on what was preached and what was taught and what was going on so that groups would then be rounded up, harassed, beaten, and imprisoned. Ordered to disband. But in the midst of that, the church continued to keep following Jesus, keeping the commands of God, and keeping faith. In Jesus. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer a few years, well, at the same time, in, uh, in Germany, actually a little before, faced great issues in Germany of the temptation to assimilate. See, in Germany, they had so intertwined the church and the nation that they confused the two. They blur, blurred the line between the two. So, I mean, directly so. I mean, it was, it was clearly the case. They connected God with a fervent German nationalism. They, the, the, the leaders of the nation acknowledged God not for who God was. They weren't interested in people following Jesus. They were interested in using the power that the Word of God can bring to make people follow them. Now, granted, we have the 2020 hindsight that's clear the people in power in Germany in the 30s were using God in order to gain the support of their power. I mean, von Schirach, who is the leader of Hitler's youth, said just as much in the mid-30s. Here's what he said. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. And just in case you didn't understand what he was saying, whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. Now Bonhoeffer, and many other theologians with him, knew that that was idolatry. That that was blasphemy. And they made sure to distinguish that God was supreme Unique and the only authority for anyone who would call themselves Christians. We actually have a great piece which Bonhoeffer was a part in our book of confessions called the the Barman Declaration. Where the leaders of the church in the early 30's saw what German nationalism was doing and said that is wrong. That is not Christian. And they wrote a statement blatantly calling that idolatry. Now, that didn't make too many friends for Bonhoeffer and others among the German power structure. And Bonhoeffer was given the option. Separate. Man, leave. Come on. Just do that separation for a little while. You stay in Germany, you're going to get yourself killed. And there you're going to be no good to anybody. Come over here. Union Seminary in New York said, Dr. Bonhoeffer, come here. Serve here. And he did for about six weeks. And he couldn't stay. He knew he had to live the gospel among his people no matter what the fiery furnace. So he returned. And he led the minority of the church. I mean, the majority of the church called themselves even German Christians. That somehow to be German and to be Christian were the same. They called themselves the Confessing Church. Another individual that I heard about was a gentleman named Dave Welch. Not the David Welch that we know and love here, but uh, another one. It's a little more current. And this doesn't occur in the political realm but more in the business realm. He was simply a uh, 
accountant for a small town bank in Virginia. And as he was reviewing the figures, reviewing the paperwork, he saw things that made him suspicious towards some of the actions that were going on. And he brought those problems to his boss, to the president of the bank, which cost him his job. Eventually in the small town, he and his wife and his family blacklisted. They couldn't get a job anywhere. They, they couldn't buy groceries without being harassed. Eventually had to move, looking for work, and now is settled in Columbus and teaches at Franklin University in Columbus with a specialty on accounting detective work to see where businesses will cut corners And tell lies in order to pad their pockets. Great stories. Powerful events of how different Christians throughout history have had to face the temptations of bowing down to the idols of success, of nationalism, and have refused, and how many have been thrown into the fiery furnace. But I wonder, in other situations, if there were followers of Jesus present who either bowed down to the idols and were silent, or maybe they didn't bow down to the idols and they got thrown in the fiery furnace and we never heard from them again. I wonder about that in the boardroom of Enron or Worldcom. Where were the followers of Jesus there? Were they there? And did they bow down? I wonder where the followers of Jesus were at Abu Ghraib when human beings were beaten. And made fun of in evil ways. Where were the followers of Jesus there? Did they bow down? Where were the the followers of Jesus in, in New Orleans? Hurricane Katrina showed us that 50% revealed to us that 50% of the children in New Orleans before the hurricane lived in poverty. Where were the followers of Jesus there? How can a city, the richest country in the history of the world, 50% of its children living in poverty? What about in the business rooms of the subprime lending market that cut corners and took chances that now we pay for? Were there followers of Jesus there? And where are we in our own community? We may not have 50% of our children living in poverty, but in the city of Cincinnati, over a third do. Where the followers of Jesus to bow down to the idols in silence? Or do we 
face the fiery furnace. What this means for us, this particular passage highlights for us that we have no other allegiance, none, than God. Period, paragraph, save the document, go ahead and send it. There is no other allegiance than God. Not family, not work, not country, not my dream, not your dream, not any religious organization's dream, not my reputation, not our reputation, nor yours. Neither our security, our comfort, or even our lives. What this means for us today is that for a follower of Jesus, there is never an excuse of blaming another for our sin, for our disobedience. God is to have our allegiance no matter what everybody else is doing. God is to have our allegiance no matter how weird or unusual it might make us feel. God is to have our allegiance no matter what our superior officer orders us to do. God is to have our allegiance no matter what our children want to do. God has our allegiance no matter what mom and dad want us to do. God has our allegiance no matter what our teacher assigns us. God has our allegiance no matter what our boss tells us to do. For me, a great challenge that hit me this week, again, that looks at the the, the subtle temptation of, of bowing down gradually in assimilation. And it continues to be a challenge. It's, it's parenting. I mean, so many pressures that I feel that are there, I don't know where they come from, for our children to succeed. In the world. And yet, Kathy and I, my, my children will be very sad to hear. Well, they won't be. They'll, they'll wonder what I'm meaning or what's up for them. But Kathy and I, in our I mean, just discussion even this week, are saying, you know, do we give the same value in our time and energy with our children, that they, from what is our biblical command, that they would know the commands of God, that they would would know the life of Jesus, as we do to them making straight A's. Or being able to throw a baseball from center field to the catcher on a line. Do we give the same value and energy 
to our biblical responsibility to raise our children in the way of Christ as we do to some of the pressures, the idols of the world, of our world. Now I wonder, for each of us, where are the places that an idol is calling us to bow down or the pressures of the world are calling us to bow down to those idols. They may be very, very different for each of us. What, where is the place that we're really unwilling or we're scared or we're worried about putting a part of our lives into the fiery furnace? Is it a, a job where we're asked to do stuff that, that we know is wrong? Is it with our friends? Is it at school? Is it a particular boyfriend or girlfriend? That we know that the pressures that are around us are not leading us to the ways of God, but they're calling us to bow down to the idols of our world. And we don't want to throw that in the furnace. Is it a personal habit? A personal attitude? Where we've bought in to the ways of the world. We've bowed down and, and, and we need to stand up and throw it into the furnace. So glad the passage doesn't stop there. As we've been singing, as we've been proclaiming, as we've been praising... It's true that the world will never take Jesus away from us. And that's what the story ends with. For Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they they refuse to bow down. They're thrown into the furnace. They suffer the consequences. And I love the the part of the the passage where they say, you know, we're going to serve God whether He saves us from the furnace or not. It really doesn't matter. We're going to serve God. And I love that again, they did it with the same sense that Daniel did last week with discretion and prudence. You know, it was with gentleness. It wasn't in your face, Nebuchadnezzar. No, it was with a gentleness that they said, we are called to serve God and that's what we must do. And so if you must throw us in the furnace, then go ahead. We will follow. And if God saves us, praise the Lord. If God doesn't, praise the Lord because we're in His hands. Whatever the fiery furnace The pressures of the world are threatening upon you. Somebody came up to me after the first service. Said, you know, the fiery furnace is the safest place to be. Go. You don't go alone. It's for the fiery furnace, I believe, that Psalm 23 was written. And Psalm 23 is for life. We say it at every funeral, it seems, but it's really not for death. It's for life. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because we know we are in the hands of God. I think it's for the fiery furnace that Jesus gave the Great Commission. 
You know, go, make disciples, teaching and baptizing. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What we were just singing with great energy is the truth that leads us forward so that we can stand tall in the midst of our fear, and in the midst of our trepidation, in the midst of our weak faith, knowing no matter what, Jesus will not abandon us. The three were thrown in the furnace, but the king then saw four. That God will rescue us will lead us forward again and again. And the best place we can be if the temptation, if the consequences to be thrown into the furnace is to go into the furnace for He'll be there with us. You know, the church in China was four million strong in 1949 when the, the, the revolution, the upheaval happened and the missionaries thrown out and the church was pursued in order to be squashed. The late 90, late nineties, early two thousand, that things started to open up, and church leaders were able to make their way back into China, and that the fear was that the four million would be squashed to half, to a quarter, to a third, to less than a million. Wonder what rubble they'd be able to uncover from the church. What they found was a church that had grown under the oppression of the government of the fiery furnace from 4 million to 50 million and had spread from cities and places that missionaries could go all throughout the rural area of the entire nation and it continues to grow today. A friend of mine that is a missionary, you may be not encouraged to hear this, but he says the group that he meets with in China prays for the persecution of the church in America so that we'll find the same growth that they did. They believe the best place to be is in the fiery furnace. As the uh, ushers get prepared to take up the offering, as the uh, musicians get in place, uh, two final things. One, See the impact again that it has on Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, great praise and adoration that the, the very one who was opposing him then became or concurred with him. He's still not quite getting his theology all straight. But that's still to come. But note the impact and the power that it has on the world around him, those that oppose him. Secondly, Know this. Just as Jesus is with you in the fiery furnace, He will be with you. He will be with us. He will be with me if in my weakness I succumb to temptation and I choose not to go in the fiery furnace. He will still be with me. Even in my shame. Even in yours. If it happens this afternoon, you're not alone. Think about Peter, who denied Jesus to his face three times. Even 
as we face the opposition, the temptations to bow down to the world. Jesus' grace and mercy, God's power is so great that, yeah, He can go in the fiery furnace and protect us. He can even go with us if we choose not to go there in our weakness, in our lack of faith. And He will continue to lead us forward no matter what. As we take up our offering. I invite you, encourage you to put not only your tithes, your gifts, your money, to, to put in the offering those the, the idols that God has brought before your mind. Give those, offer them to God. The, the fiery furnaces that you are facing, offer them to God. And know that no matter what, He'll take and He'll go with you. Amen.